0: The dignity of work. Well, there's a large and ever-increasing Christian literature that explores the theme of work and employment, and along with that, the corollaries of leisure and unemployment. But for all that, it's probably not an exaggeration to say That the ideas that most Christians have about work are shaped by the world rather than the teaching of Scripture. It's certainly a theme that most pulpits are silent about. You're probably going to say to me, Ah, I heard a good sermon on it last week. Well, (laughs) that may be so, but in my experience, it's not a theme that people take up. Not for lack of biblical texts. There are many portions of scripture that focus on this very area. There is a reluctance nowadays that wasn't shared 100, 200, 300 years ago. A reluctance to focus on the matter of work. And because of that, Christians, as often as not, end up with views about work that are not really very much different from the view of society around us. Mind you, society doesn't have a unified view about work. You get some people who view work with um, whimsical detachment. Uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with Jerome K. Jerome's, the quote from Jerome K. Jerome's Three Men in a Boat uh, I like work, it fascinates me, I can sit and look at it for hours. <laughs> More common still is the simple concept that the main reason why we engage in work is so that we can earn a living. Work is something to be endured so that the proceeds from work will allow me to get on with what I really think life's about. Uh, And I remember once reading about a sticker someone saw in the back of a car that that summed up that approach. It said, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. (laughs) And that's the point most people have. Why do you go to work? I earn so that I can consume. And we've really got to ask ourselves, is that biblical? And I think the answer has to be no. Where then are we going to begin in articulating a biblical viewpoint on work? Well, in developing a biblical theology of work, much depends on where you begin your analysis. And I think there are three possibilities. You can begin it in Genesis chapter 3, or Genesis chapter 2, or Genesis chapter 1. If you begin in Genesis chapter 3, you end up with a view of work that emphasizes the difficulties that beset man as a worker you end up with a view of work as something that has got all sorts of problems associated with it. If you begin in Genesis chapter 2, you have a more positive view because there you get presented a picture of work as what has been divinely mandated for mankind. Work is something that predates the fall. Work is something that has got significance and dignity and honor. Because it comes from before the entry of sin into the human race. Work as such is part of God's program for mankind. And that's a valuable emphasis. I'll come back to it in a moment. But it's only as we appreciate the significance of what I'm calling Genesis 1. That we get a fully orbed picture of what the Bible teaches about work. So the first of the three basic biblical postulates about work that I want to think about this evening is quite a simple one. It is the fact God works. It sounds so ordinary, perhaps, to our ears that we think it's commonplace. We take it for granted. But in fact, the idea that God works contrasts starkly with the view of the God's That was found in many ancient religions. For instance amongst the ancient Greeks. And you remember that Greek thinking and Greek ideas. Have had a tremendous influence on Western civilization and culture. For the ancient Greeks. Ordinary work was beneath a true citizen. It was in an an indignity. To impose the, the burden of manual labor. Or... Ordinary household tasks on a free man. And if that was what they thought about work in relation to uh, the the free man of Athens, the gods were viewed as living the ideal life, free from work or labour. There's the saying, the Greeks have a word for it. Well, the Greeks actually had a difficulty getting a word that corresponded to our word, work. And in fact, the the word that they they used was ascoli, a negative word that actually means not leisure. And that really, to a large extent, seems to sum up the Greek position. In our culture, in Western civilization, the negative words are all used of the non-work situation, unemployment jobless even retirement is a negative word it's emphasizing what you're no longer doing and have retired from for the Greeks the negative words were all the other way around the negative words uh, were used of the work situation and the positive words were applied to leisure the Greeks devalued work That view didn't prevail in Western civilization because of the picture that is presented in Scripture that begins with the fact that God works. And that is the fundamental feature of the presentation of Genesis 1. God there is active in a creative and orderly fashion, producing what's useful, producing what's beautiful, giving existence to what up to that time had only been divinely planned genesis 1 is the record of the imaginative creative work of god and you remember it ends with god saying god with the scripture saying god saw all that he had made and it was very good It's one of the um, niceties of biblical scholarship that Genesis 1 doesn't actually end at the end of Genesis 1. It, it creeps into Genesis 2 because the next few verses really go with Genesis 1. And they are just at the beginning of Genesis 2. You get the same message. On the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And the word that's used there in Genesis 2, chapter, verse 2, the word work, is the word for the skilled craftsman's work. It's not the work for heavy word for heavy labor. It's the word for something done skillfully, something done with care, with precision. God finished His work, and so on the seventh day He rested from all His work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because in it He rested from. All the work of creating that he had done. And then just a little later on in Genesis 2, Scripture again uses a metaphor for God the worker that would be quite alien to Greek thought. God is likened to a potter in Genesis 2 verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And the word formed is a metaphor from the action of squeezing into shape that was literally applied to the potter, molding, shaping the clay. Scripture does not hesitate to speak of God as the craftsman, God as the potter. There is no hint or suggestion that these images are in any way demeaning to the reality of God. And it's not only in creation that God is presented as working. His redemptive activities are known as his works. To take just one of many instances, you remember how in Psalm 107, the psalmist surveys the saving provision that God makes for his people And repeatedly the psalmist comes to the conclusion, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds, his wonderful works for men. And that's the testimony of the New Testament as well. Jesus told the Jews, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. God worked in creation. Works in providence. He works in salvation. And what is more, we must remember that Jesus himself worked. He was a carpenter until the age of 30. Isn't this the carpenter? Is what they said of him in Mark's Gospel. And it's against that background that the Christian view of work has to be formulated. It is not demeaning. It is not to be despised. It is what God himself does. In passing, may I just point out that in those passages I've mentioned from Genesis, we also have the basis for a Christian theology of leisure. God didn't work continuously. God set apart the seventh day because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. It's put even more graphically in Exodus uh, thirty-one seventeen. On the seventh day he abstained from, his, from work and rested. The AV, slightly better, was refreshed. The, the phrase might even be translated, he took a breather. It's a picture of doing something different. Doing something apart from work. And in some ways set over against it. Perhaps I'll have the chance, the time. I tend not to have the time for all the other ideas I was going to take up. But I may come back and say a little bit more about leisure. For the moment, the first thing about work is the fact God works. The second major aspect of the biblical pres- perspective <coughs> on work it comes out of the creation covenant. Not only is the fact God works, he has made mankind in his image and in his likeness. And one consequence of that is is that we are to work too. The link between our work and God's work and the fact that the same pattern is to be shared by both is stated most clearly in the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Work is therefore a creation ordinance. It is something that goes back before the fall to what God instituted for mankind in their innocence, mankind unfallen. Work was part of God's original purpose for human life. And so in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, we've got the verse, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God designated for Adam before he fell the sphere of labor he was to engage in. And the general nature of the tasks assigned him were fixed by God. So that idleness was not to prevail in Eden, in paradise. Another aside. That also means that idleness will not be a feature of heaven hereafter. Inasmuch as heaven is paradise regained plus a great deal more, it's not to be viewed as a life of unending idleness. It is to be viewed as a life of work. Work in the way in which Adam would have known and enjoyed it had sin never entered in and disrupted the realm of creation. But between Eden and paradise and heaven hereafter, in this world now, Failure to engage in work is abnormal and unnatural. It's an inbuilt part of the human constitution that makes us workers in our nature. And that's what makes the the impact of many things that are negative about work so devastating. The impact, say, of redundancy. Now, paid employment is the form in which our need to work finds its most common expression nowadays. And for someone to be told, your services are no longer wanted, creates not so much a problem for physical survival what am I going to live on? It creates a crisis for mental and spiritual survival because the redundant have to grapple with the rejection that is felt when one's told, you're no longer wanted. And it's not just a feeling of rejection. There is also a very real frustration involved in lack of work, because work is an essential element of our self-fulfillment. God, the Creator... Making us in his image gave us the capacity uh, to be, shall we call them, under-creators. To do things in his likeness. To use the opportunities, the materials, the wealth of his universe in a way that mirrored his original creative act. And if we're prevented from doing that, there is frustration. Because work gives an opportunity for self-expression, self-fulfillment, an opportunity to be the sorts of individuals God intended us to be. And it's not just a matter of redundancy. Equally traumatic and just as perplexing nowadays is the social alienation uh, that's engendered amongst those who, who never become employed at all amongst the young who, who never find a job, never mind lose it later on. These problems aren't unique to modern industrial society, but they certainly appear now intensified in locally concentrated form because of the, the economic structure of modern civilization. And it's against that background... We should be careful. Scripture never defines a person's worth in terms of their employment. Although there is the mandate to work, there is the command to be active, a person's status is never linked to their employment. Scripture, for instance, the Old Testament, has an ongoing concern for the alien, the widow, and the orphan. And that illustrates the fact that the primary emphasis of Scripture in terms of the person, in terms of the individual, is independent of their economic circumstances. These were the classes uh, most liable to be uh, out of work, most liable to be economically deprived. Scripture doesn't say write them off as people. It doesn't say they don't count in society anymore. It says the opposite. It says go out of your way to take care of them. But even so, idleness, lack of employment are unnatural. And to appreciate the implications of all that, and perhaps to point to some sort of solution, we must make sure that we have a biblical conception of what constitutes work. There's another feature you see of the early chapters of Genesis. It's not just work is divinely mandated. It's not just that work is a necessary aspect of human existence. We don't get the full picture until we take what's said at the end of Genesis chapter 1 into account. God said... Let us make man in our image, in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Mankind are given dominion over all the earth. God as the king who has brought this realm into existence places mankind as rulers over it as those whom he mandates to have dominion to have rights to have the task of exploring and using and bringing forward the realm that he has made It's not just a matter of control of the physical environment. The whole potential of the created realm is placed under the control of mankind. And what we might generally refer to as culture, civilization, are part of the sphere of human work. It's not just a matter of procuring what we need to survive. Work is the way in which we carry out the duties imposed on us by the creation covenant. By what God said when he brought mankind into existence and said, let them rule. Let them rule over all the earth. Let them enter into the full potential of what I have created. Exploring it, enjoying it, making use of it. We are stewards of God's resources in the physical world around us. And we're also stewards of our own time and effort in relation to carrying out what has to be done to fulfill the mandate given to us. And I think it's that structure that we've got to keep in our minds that work derives from the position of dignity that God has given man, mankind, in creation. God has put mankind ruling over this realm, and he has done so with responsibilities and duties which are carried out through the medium of work. But God hasn't abandoned the world. It is not the case that only left working in the world are mankind. It is an essential part of the biblical picture of work that there is divine human cooperation. We began by stressing God is at work in providence. God is at work in history. God is at work in the world around us. And since God is sovereign, no human work can exist out with his control. We must see our work as part of his work. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. The psalmist isn't disparaging human activity. There are some, might I call them ultra-reformed thinkers, who do seem to me to go so far as to disparage human activity. They say there's no intrinsic value in the work the believer or anyone else does. God, they argue, may in his love assign value to what his people do. But it's really nothing different from the way in which a a fond parent values the doodlings of a youngster they bring home from school and uh, they end up perhaps stuck on the fridge door. No one would suggest put them in the National Gallery. No one would suggest if you hold an auction uh, that you'll get anything for them. But still, they play a significant part in the relationship between uh, the parent and the child they're significant and they're put on the fridge door is that all we can say about human work is that all we can say that God values the work of his children on earth because they are his children because he has called them in his love and saved them and therefore what they do has value for him well that's true I'm not denying that, but it goes far more, further than that. God has called his people to further the task that he is requiring of them. God is at work in history, and one of the major ways in which he works in history is through his people acting in obedience to his commands. And what we do then is not just provide uh, drawings for the fridge door, or oh, we are invested with our work is invested with significance and dignity because it is done in cooperation with God and the Reformation, Martin Luther and Calvin made much of this. Luther's concept of vocation came out of this. Idea of human divine cooperation in work. When we carry out what we do in faith to God and in obedience to His commands, God works through us. And such a view of work provides us with a right perspective on it, with the incentive to engage in it, because there's meaning in what we're doing, God's meaning. Saves us, of course, from arrogant assertions about what we've done. But God has so ordered life on earth as to depend on people. God has so ordered the outworking of history that whatever our work is, we need to see it as being worked in cooperation with God, glorifying him got to have both sides of the picture John Stott um, took the well known verse we plough the fields and scatter the good seed on the land but it is fed and watered by God's almighty hand Said there you have the presentation human activity and the blessing coming from God himself But he said, you can turn it round just as truly. And he offered the alternative side, the other side of the coin. God plants the lovely garden and gives the fertile soil, but it is kept and nurtured by man's resourceful toil. They're both there. They're both needed. At one time, our thinking may emphasize God's overall sovereignty, At another time, it will be our responsibility. We've got to keep both sides in the picture if we're going to move forward. And there is, as I said, a third aspect. It's the Genesis 3 aspect. Work and the fall. Before the fall, work was unalloyed blessing. But afterwards... It is twisted, it is distorted. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your fruit until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. I think we've got to be careful. Work itself is not directly cursed. It is the environment in which work is going to take place that is the direct subject of God's curse. Cursed is the ground. It is still possible for work to be a pleasure and a delight. But frequently, even the most pleasurable and delightsome work becomes a struggle and a burden because of the changed environment in which we work. Someone recently expressed it by saying, Adam, having been a gardener, now becomes a farmer. With all the implications of what's involved in being a farmer these days. He had to strive against forces That opposed him. And scripture is perfectly realistic about this. The negative environment in which work is now carried out. Is stated clearly. Perhaps most powerfully it's in the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 2 there there's an examination. Of what happens when one tries to, to find satisfaction. In acquiring more and more goods. It gets you nowhere. Ecclesiastes 2.11 When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve everything was meaningless a chasing after the wind nothing was gained under the sun and later on at verse 22 What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun all his days his work is pain and grief Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. So work now is not always necessarily rewarding. But that hasn't withdrawn the creation mandate that we should work. Indeed, Ecclesiastes, even at his darkest moments, finds the solution in work. There is nothing better, he says, for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. Work is, at this present time, not all that it once was and not all that it shall be hereafter, but it is still required. And if we can see what we are doing, even in the moments of struggle, in the moments of stress and of burden as not something that merely relates to having a meal at the end of the day, but as relates to the forward movement of God's purpose towards the eschaton, towards the consummation of all things, we see meaning and purpose and significance and dignity in our own living and in our working Well, with those as basic presuppositions, can we go any further? Looking at the number of books that have been written, yes, a great deal further. But I want to try and just explore another set of three ideas. Let's begin, first of all, by making clear that work is more than paid employment. Work covers all that we do to fulfill the creation mandate. All that we do that contributes to the realization of God's rule through mankind over the created realm that he made. The idea of paid employment is very late. Uh, for most of the Old Testament and most of the New Testament, most people worked for themselves or worked in, in, in family units. Uh, you didn't get wages at the end of the day. Paid employment is a modern form of work, but work has to be viewed as all that we have to strive to do, all that we use our energies and abilities to do towards fulfilling the requirements God has laid on mankind. And for the believer, each and every aspect of work is an act of loyal obedience to God. And therefore all of work becomes sacred, set apart to God's service. That is the transforming Christian conception of work. It is not, in the first place, burdensome. It is not simply materialistic, I need to work to eat. It is something that I can dedicate to God. No matter what the employment is, no matter what the work activity is, if it is moving towards the realization of God's command to fill the earth, to subdue it, to enjoy it, to realize its potential, to hasten the consummation, then that is the way we are to view our work and enter into it. And the three things I want to say especially are first of all, that involves a unified view of the world. In medieval times, the Roman Catholic view of life Separated very much the spheres of grace and nature. The prevalent teaching was that acts of spiritual contemplation, acts of devotion, were where an individual could really seek God, could really enter into fellowship with God. And at best, ordinary work, ordinary labour, was just a necessary evil to enable one to live a spiritual life. There was a two worlds mentality that, at a very large extent, kept Christian standards from permeating. Every aspect of life. What was the ideal? The ideal was to withdraw from the world. Into the monastery or into the nunnery. That was where the truly religious went. They withdrew from ordinary life. And its demands. demands, So that they could be more absorbed. In the sphere of grace. In the sphere of devotion to God. And others were second class at best. The reformation view. Emphasize that all of life is God's. And the ordinary activities of life can be glorifying to God. And this is the view of Scripture. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What can be more ordinary than eating and drinking? And what can be more comprehensive than whatever you do? It points the way to every activity in life being oriented towards the object of glorifying God. And that's how scripture portrays the Christian attitude towards work. In writing to Titus, Paul said, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good or to be ready for every good work in the the older translation and we know that Paul acted in line with his own advice he remained a tent maker to earn his livelihood and did Paul think that while he was working as a tent maker he was in some way not working for Christ not at all all of his life he saw as an integrated whole. All of his life he saw as dedicated to Christian service. And every action he undertook was devoted to serving the Lord. Now this isn't just a matter of paid employment. All legitimate occupations are worthy. No matter what it is they are each. In measure, seeking to explore, to use, to enjoy the gifts that God has given us in the world around us and the individual talents he's endowed us with. Works not to be robbed of its significance and worth because it's unpaid. Luther emphasized this time and again. one place he said, what you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for the Lord God. And in another place, I remember reading him saying something to the effect uh, that even the scullery maid as she goes to milk the cow is engaged in God's service. He was emphasizing that every activity in life that is fitting in with the pattern of God's creation mandate is of significance. And I think that Part of the answer to the problem of unemployment, part of the answer to the tensions of the individual in those sorts of situations is to present, to have the broader biblical view of work. It may not be a total answer, but it can go a long way towards regaining the self-fulfillment, the meaning and the significance that God means us to find as we work in his creation. Now a second major aspect to the Christian doctrine of work, if the first is that it's against a unified view of the world, I think the second has to be the concept of calling or vocation. Now scripture talks about individuals being called, and there is, the, general, there is the, the, the gospel call to lead a life of faith and godliness, receiving and responding to the salvation that God offers in Jesus Christ. But the doctrine of vocation or calling is generally referred to another level of divine call, the call to specific tasks. In the Old Testament, this is most often associated with the prophets. Prophet Amos said, The Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. A God intervened in his life and called him to a specific, specific task and vocation. In the New Testament, we think of the way Jesus called the disciples. The way Paul talks of himself as Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Okay, you might say, but all those callings are spiritual, religious things. They're, they're, they're um, church-related sort of tasks. Do you, Can you get broader than that? Is, is this calling, this second style of calling, The sort of thing that one might experience, one might come to realize in terms of specific Christian activities is a call to the ministry. Well, that idea did persist for centuries in the church. That this second vocation, the second idea of calling, this vocation, was very much a calling to specific Christian service to church-related tasks. But the Reformation turned that on its head. The emphasis given was that God had arranged society so that every individual may exercise the gifts given him or her in a way that glorifies God and furthers his purpose. And that seems to be what Paul's talking about in First Corinthians chapter seven, uh, verses seventeen and twenty. Verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that God assigned to him and to which God has called him. <clears throat> ah, that's the NIV, and the, 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 they're too fancy. Everyone should, um, verse 20, each one should remain in the situation. Paul's deliberately using two words from the same Greek root here. He's actually saying each one should remain in the calling Uh, which he was in when God called him. It's a play in words. God's calling him. That's the call to respond to the gospel. But the first calling, he should remain in the calling, that's his vocation. That's the place that he is in life. And Paul, in that part of 1 Corinthians, in the end of chapter 7, is talking about how conversion should affect one's ordinary living. And he's using the word calling Not to refer to our spiritual standing before God, but to our situation in life. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean abandoning our family. It doesn't mean abandoning, as the NIV calls it, our life situation, our calling. It requires us to approach them with Christian moral and spiritual values, giving them true worth. Remember the advice John the Baptist gave. The tax collectors came to him. Tax collectors were as corrupt as you could imagine in Palestine under the Romanic occupation. He didn't say to them, give up being tax collectors. He said, collect no more than is appointed you. The soldiers came to him. They were the army of occupation. They used to abuse the power that they had. He didn't say to them, stop being soldiers. He said, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The calling, the occupation they had, could be legitimately carried through as part of God's ordering and structuring of society. And uh, Scripture's advice is, work in that situation in a way that is true to the moral standards of Christianity. There is a caveat, of course. Uh, I'm reminded of a story, and I forget the name of the American gangster, but he was reputed to have been converted shortly before he left prison. And uh, after he came out of prison, uh, people were looking for a changed lifestyle, and they weren't observing it. He seemed to be living much the way he'd been before he went into prison. So, so someone challenged him. And they said, you, you, you're, there's something amiss here. And the response he gave them was, well, there are Christian doctors and there are Christian lawyers. I'm a Christian gangster. <laughs> there are some areas of life that are so contrary to God's will, they cannot be Christianized. But providing the occupation is legitimate, providing the vocation is in terms of God's mandate to rule the world in his name, answerable to him, then it is one that can be pursued legitimately. And if your work is something that God has called you to, It makes all the difference in the world to our attitude towards it. In the context of faith and obedience, we find the great motivation and sustainer in the work situation. Even when the task is monotonous, if it needs to be done, if it can be seen as fitting into the grand purpose God has in history, the task is transformed. There's another consequence of seeing employment as vocation. If you're where God wants you to be, it's a great equaliser. Because whether you're looking at somebody at the very top of the organisational structure of the firm or somebody at the very bottom, if they're both where God wants them to be, then none can make any greater claim than the other. It gives to the one fulfilling the lowliest post the same standing. It's a radical reassessment of the values the world so likes to promote regarding success. We're being asked not merely to promote Christian values in our work, but to see our work as part of the onward movement of God's purposes in history. And so we come to the big question, of course. How do I know? what vocation god is calling me to our aim should be to serve god as effectively as we can we should be saying to ourselves given who i am and what god has made me given the opportunities that are before me how may i best serve god And if we answer that question genuinely and honestly, we'll be in a position to know true personal satisfaction. We'll also be in a position to make the the best contribution we can to the welfare of society. It's not the same thing as maximizing my income. It's not the same thing as being in a position to command the greatest amount of economic resources. It's not in a position to have the greatest career path in the world. It's to ask ourselves how, being what I am and being where I am, may I best serve God. It won't come by some process of mysticism in which rational thought goes out of the window. It comes about by self knowledge. And of course, that's one of the most difficult things to have. We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But to think of ourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given us. As we look at ourselves, realize what we can do, realize the situation that we find ourselves in, in our own society, in our own environment, in our own position. And when I say position, I'm not limiting something geographically. Geography enters into it less and less nowadays. I'm thinking more of of our position in, in terms of society. Then we can work out what it is that God is calling us to do. Can I move on? And this is the third aspect. We should think of our work As an exercise in stewardship. Covered much of this already. But it's worth emphasizing it again. This is in recognition of the creation covenant. The, The view of the world is that the laborer owns his own right to work. And he's selling his services to an employer. We have no absolute rights on earth. All that we are and all that we have are divinely given. The potential we have is a potential entrusted to us by God. And ultimately the great king will demand a reckoning from those to whom he has entrusted the stewardship of his created realm. That means what we do is important. That means that what we do has significance. And that's why earlier we read Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25 where the landowner if we're going a long journey entrusts his property to three of his stewards one man given five talents a talents in those days sums of money uh, the terms developed since then it's five talents, two talents, one talent two of them invested it wisely doubled their resources during their master's absence and the third put what he'd been trusted with in a hole in the ground not realising he was really digging a hole for himself now when Jesus told that parable it was part of the pair that you find in Matthew 25 prophetic of what was going to come on the Jewish church and also a warning to the Christian church But in it, there are a number of evident principles regarding work. There's the obvious element of vocation. God, the sovereign provider of the opportunities, the abilities, the time for work. The landowner entrusts his property to three of his stewards. So that what they have is not something they can say, this is mine, it is something given to me, and I will be called to give an account. And we also see there very clearly that when God gives, he expects service. The worker is the servant actively engaged in producing something for his or her master. Inactivity, laziness are not permitted. Service involves total commitment. Commitment. Of course we've got to be careful about that one there are those who fall into the sin of being workaholics so addicted to their work that everything else takes second place that's a form of idolatry because it's a distortion of the biblical doctrine of work it's putting work in place of god the total commitment of the worker is to god not to a particular job. It's also a distortion of the biblical ethic of leisure. There is a Christian duty to rest, even as the work of God was complemented by rest. And that's a social as well as an individual obligation. It applies not just to individuals, it applies to communities, and the pattern of scripture is it should apply to communities on the same day and totally. But looking just at the parable, there is the divine vocation. There is service required. And then there is the area of intelligent choice. The stewards were entrusted with their master's wealth. And it was then up to them, to their initiative, to do something with it. He didn't lay down a total list and say... This is what you do at nine o'clock, this is what you do at two minutes past nine, and so on for however many years he was away. He gave them this great wealth and said, get on with it. Moral responsibility is a necessary part of the work situation. And we also see there that God judges mankind on the basis of the service of they render the reward of faithfulness is the approval of their master the reward of faithfulness is hearing him say come enter into what i am going to give you it's not the worker who owns his work as in capitalism it's not society that owns his work as in the various forms of socialism It's God who is the rightful owner of human work and there is a very real sense in which the worker offers his work back to God. The dignity of human work comes because the primary question is not what is in it for me but how can I please God by what I do. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Colossians three twenty-three and 24. Ephesians 6, 5 to 7. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. I conclude with a story. It's an old story, as you'll see in just a moment. Of a man who was walking down a country lane. And he came to a quarry where there were a number of men working. And he went up to the men and asked them what they were doing. The first was rather irritated by this and said, Can't you see what we're doing? We're hewing stones. And the second one didn't even look up when he was asked, What are you doing? And this is how you know it was some time ago because he said, I'm earning five pounds a week. That's what I'm doing. (laughs) The third man, however, stopped his work, put aside his tools, drew himself upright, and answered with pride, I'm building a cathedral. What are you doing? It all depends on the perspective that you have on it. It all depends on the view that you have. And scripture encourages us to have the grandest and most comprehensive view possible, taking in the full scope of God's purpose, the God who gave the mandate for, creation, for work in creation, the God who gives purpose and significance to his people's work as fitting into the way in which he works through history and providence towards the consummation of his purposes on earth. The God who is pleased to reward that work when it's done faithfully in his name. And so the question for us is, how do we view the overall plan of God? Are we building cathedrals? Thank you.
1: Thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Mackay, for that uh a comprehensive talk. I'm going to just not allow anyone to leave the room, but uh, if you want to, just stand up. You don't have to do this, or just shake yourself about, but just for one minute, and then we'll take some questions. Please don't leave the room. Um, So, is there anything at all that anyone would like to have clarified on what has been said, or perhaps there's something which uh, you were hoping might be said which hasn't been... And please and feel. Can I take one and then two? Right, first of all, and then you, sir. It's uh, be
2: appropriate now, but could Professor Kei say something because he promised about leisure?
0: Mm. <laughs> 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 oh, I knew I was giving a hostage to fortune when I said that. <laughs> can I just say two or three things briefly? Leisure is not emptiness. It's not idleness it also fits in to this view of God's creation. Perhaps I could best put it by saying, if work is trying to do something productive with God's creation, leisure focuses on enjoying the creator and what's in his creation. Uh, <coughs> That doesn't quite cover everything, but I think that's the principal thrust. Uh, And therefore, it sounds perhaps unusual to modern ears, I take worship as a major part of leisure because it is so very much enjoying the creator and what he's done in his creation. Leisure is one of the... If work's a problem nowadays, leisure's an even bigger problem because people make work out of it. Yeah, the, the no, it, it's, it, There's some American author I was reading recently when I was preparing this who told the story of a family who thought it would be nice to have a yacht and to enjoy a leisure time sailing on a particular lake. But they found that the amount of work that was involved... In keeping the yacht in good trim, in towing it two hours till they got to the lake, and in all the sort, that the amount of leisure time they had left was very little. Now, we, leisure is therefore a crucial area where it can become very difficult to get perspectives right. And uh, it's almost worth a lecture next time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We We've settled our program for next year. <laughs> There's a gentleman over here wanted to ask a question.
2: I wanted to ask if the professor could explain what St. Paul meant when he said, If a man doesn't work, sure he should he. not eat.
1: Taken over by Karl Marx, wasn't he?
0: Paul was speaking against the background of those who were using their conversion to Christianity as an excuse for not working at all. It rather looks as if they had taken one understanding of the imminence of Christ's return as saying, well, there's there's no point in laying up for tomorrow, there's no point, uh, let us just... um, Well, in fact, in the passage that was read, Paul said uh, it made the the, the comparison between being busy and being busy buddies. Uh, I'm not quite sure where you're coming coming from with that question. Uh, There are obvious... uh, Paul was enjoining the requirement to work and linking it to uh, the... mm, the way one lives. Can I put it this way? Uh, God no longer is pleased uh, to feed his church the way he fed the Israelites in the wilderness with manna. God uses the means that he's appointed in his creation. And the ordinary rule for those for who are able to work uh, is to... Work so that they may live. But that is a a very truncated, a very limited view of work because living is not the end in itself. It's living for Christ. And merely to survive physically is a very materialistic, one might almost say a modern conception of what life's about. Uh, the, the life has got to be, a true true Christian living has got to be broadened against the whole picture of a life uh, that fits in with Christ's purpose in his church and in the m- movement forward of history. Uh, have I got to wh- wh- where you are? A bit, I
2: understand
1: a bit. Thank you. Uh, our, our society, our Huge welfare state. Not only has rendered men virtually obsolete, but <coughs> it also renders work obsolete. Uh, most people don't need to work. You can sign on and you can pretend you're sick and you can have a very comfortable existence. What, what would you say about
0: that? I, I don't think it's true. Um, I, I have. Okay. let's classify the unemployed very roughly into two categories, the work shy and the absolutely frustrated. Most of the people I meet tend to be in the class of the absolutely frustrated that they haven't got employment because it's built into us that we need to be doing something. Now sometimes people live in situations in society, so it's, we're no longer small farmers, we no longer have a small family holding that we can use our time on in some profitable way. One answer to that sort of person is to say, but the Christian view of work is more than paid employment. There are some really valuable tasks in God's kingdom that the world doesn't remunerate, but which you can be usefully engaged in and receive the self-fulfillment that is denied you. So that there's one area, there are many people who are unemployed who are absolutely miserable and devastated by the experience. Yes, and there are also those who are idle and shirkers and those who don't want to do anything at all. And I think that... Uh, the welfare state uh, there is a major problem there always will be a major problem uh in in grappling with that situation but the uh i'll leave up to the politicians the practicalities of it but it comes to the, the verse that was quoted if a man will not work neither shall he eat that uh those who expect a life subsidised by others indefinitely, because they're, they're, going to, they're going to cheat the system in some way, that is not a Christian lifestyle. Uh, but my, my sympathy is, 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 sympathies are very much with the, those who face the, the, the devastating experience, particularly when it's in a community uh, where the major employer suddenly leaves and says, you know, and this factory is closing. It can be a really horrendous situation to cope with. Yes, sir. just um, go ahead. Yeah, having explained uh, the understanding of the Greeks, how they look at uh, mm-hmm. at work, uh, of course, this will have immense consequences for for missionaries having uh, to step outside of your own culture
2: into a, uh, another culture. Um, can you maybe just say a little bit something more about that? Mm-hmm.
0: If I were being truthful, I'd say no, because I, I'm afraid I'm very unadventurous, and when it comes to stepping outside my own culture, I find the border just north of Newcastle quite, quite an achievement. And I, I, I'm not. Your question's a very good question. I'm the wrong person to answer it. That, that, that is the, the most truthful answer I can give you. But it, yes, I, I think that one has to, even within British if I dare use the word British culture, uh, things have changed over time. And attitudes towards work have significantly shifted, uh, even within the last hundred years. So that whenever you're talking about this, you've got to go back to basics, you've got to go back to scripture, you've got to argue the position through in relation to where you find the society. And yes, I, I, I'm sure that different cultures will have different... Um, basic ideas but the v- mankind are the same wherever you go uh, the, the, the same basic traits of the work shy and those who are desperate for work and can't find it will will, will be found everywhere and so that the, the basic message though it's got to be shaped to the situation it is one that's um, uh, fundamentally valid but mm, I'd I better leave there. I, 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 do, do you know the word havering down here? Uh, well, if it means the same thing as it does with me, that's what it...
1: Yes, Neville.
2: Very brief question, Professor. Are there any clues in Scripture as to what kind of work we might be engaged in in heaven?
1: I <laughs> <laughs> say a no.
0: Oh, I'm having to review the possibilities, first of all. Um, I've
2: always been more interested in leisure than work, you
0: see. Yeah. yeah, well, <laughs> uh, the, the, it strikes me that one of the greatest activities of heaven is going to be following through and working out all that God has done in the flow of history. But in my own mind I'm finding it difficult just now to define that as work rather than leisure because I basically defined leisure as contemplating the creator and enjoying all that he's done. So it, it sounds more as if that's going to fall into my uh, conception of leisure. But the, the reason why I did say that work will be found in heaven is because I, I do believe that the, the situation of, of mankind in Edom as presented in Scripture, was ideal. God pronounced it very good, and work was part of that very goodness. And therefore, I feel convinced that there will be a corresponding element, although heightened, and you know, I- I- in heaven. Um, I think the answer comes to no, really. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, in
2: terms of hey, the fourth of Hebrews, there remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. <laughs> and, uh,
0: Oh yes, well, <laughs> a Sabbath rest. Now that, that fits in with my definition of leisure, doesn't it? Uh huh.
2: said we can't really go on and on and on. You will take eternity. But I've looked forward to this rest for a long time.
0: Oh, I'm yes, yes, yes. But I, I, I'm sure you'll find whatever you get there will be very enjoyable. <laughs> I, I, I think I better. Pam, a question.
2: I was interested in your reference to um, society and rest and in fact rest happening perhaps at the same time and on the same day we're living increasingly in an era of flexible working and of internet banking and call centres and one has even heard of churches admitting that maybe their congregations mostly won't be free on a Sunday and they'll be having to come on a Tuesday night or whatever I mean how can we counter this trend and, and what are the implications for the church and should we try and regain a day of rest? Because that is fast disappearing. Isn't it? Mm.
0: Yes. Uh, that's lectures two, three, four. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you've pinpointed there uh, areas of real concern in terms of the really fast decline in modern British society. The pressures that are being put on people to engage in Sunday work are enormous in many occupations and growing all the time. And it is undermining the spiritual fabric of our land. I deliberately said what I said because People say, oh yes, but we'll let you have your Sunday while we get on with what we want to do. That is not the picture of scripture. And uh, it's just the same as my children sometimes say to me. Oh, you you can go to your room and you can rest there while we get on with all this noise and hullabaloo around the house. It doesn't work. Um, Part part of the... uh, environment of true rest is that you are not doing it on your own. It it is a part of society. And it's a worrying, but it's not an isolated, unfortunately, aspect of modern society. How one counters it, uh, you really have to just take it case by case. But one of the challenges is to think back to the situation that the early church had to face. Because that's rapidly where we're getting to. We're getting to a society that is as depraved and mixed up as ancient Rome was. The early church there, many of them did not have control of their own time. Many of them were slaves. Uh, And really, in terms of modern employment, the word slave may not be used, but it's there's a considerable number of parallels. Uh, They would meet in the evening of the first day of the week because that was the time they could all gather together. Even in the ancient world, I don't know if it works in the days of the internet, but in the ancient world, the evening was not a time for working because it got dark and there was no artificial lighting and things like that. The church may very well be forced to make concessions of that sort it's done so in the past in Victorian Edinburgh I know that afternoon services were started on Sundays because the maids in the houses of the well-to-do couldn't come to the morning service Uh, but it was still on the Lord's Day Uh, there's a measure of flexibility, it's not ideal no one's saying it's ideal But uh, there are things that can be done. The solution won't come until there's again a general recognition of Christian standards in our land. And that will only come, I would suggest, by there being a considerable measure of revival in the land.
1: Yes? Um.
2: Before the Lord's return, um, I was wondering what what should our expectations be for um, the kind of the, the dominion, the, the the divine mandate, the, the kind of creation mandate. As you said, I mean, with regards to the kind of the Sunday, you know, um, thing, we've got to make concessions. So we live day to day, and we want to live it out. But what about our kind of long-term expectations for Dominion, should we have realistic expectations? I mean, sorry, should we have expectations or should we just live almost every day as
0: it comes? Do you see what I mean? Yes, and uh, we should never give up the scriptural picture of what is yet to be. That is clearly set before us. And it's that that has sustained the faith of the church over the centuries. At any individual point in time, the church can find itself in very beleaguered situations. And it has to maintain a witness as best it can. Uh, Let's be quite frank, that's where we are now. We're not in a triumphalist situation by any manner of means. We're in a situation where there are all sorts of legal, civil, social um, obstacles liable to come to affect the church. And doesn't relieve us of the obligation to view our own conduct, to view our own work, to view our own purpose in living, according to what scripture says, and to seek to set forth as fully as we can Uh, You used the word compromise. Um, Yes, I know I did, and I'm beginning to regret I did. Um, (laughs) I'm trying to argue for a a maximal, um, not maximum, but as big a Christian claim before the world as one possibly can, given the situation we're in. Um, There is... Somebody said to me the other day, and I was quoting somebody else, and some of you might even work out who it was uh, the future is as bright as the promises of God. And no matter what the situation we're in, we haven't to lose sight of the promises and we're to seek to realize them as fully as we can in the situation that God has placed us in. Uh, As fully as possible. Can, can, can I redefine compromises as, as fully as possible? And I think that catches the note far better. Peter,
2: do you think that there is some reason for concern that not only do we have um, a low view of work in general, but in particular a low view of manual work and manual skills? And uh, is there a pastoral issue in many a church, which may be typically middle class, that those who do manual work feel themselves to be second class citizens?
0: Well, those are genuine problems. Uh, Jesus was a carpenter. And I think we've always got to keep in mind. That Scripture presents manual work in the highest possible terms. I, I don't, I don't think it's right, really, for the Christian to try ranking occupations in the way in which the world does. But there's tremendous pressure to accept A, A, B, B, upper C, or whatever else in the various social strata that are identified in all sorts of surveys and things. Our thinking should be quite different from that. But it does mean that there is, there is this pressure, and that does mean that very often uh, those in a congregation who have skills at speaking, whose, work, whose ordinary and paid employment involves them in administration tend to become the organizers in church life as well. Uh, And it's something that should be striven against. In terms of the life of the church, uh, it is spiritual maturity and spiritual wisdom that should be the index by which people uh, become leaders in the Christian community. And it's it's part of the challenge to be different from the way the world thinks. Uh, And yes, it, it can be a very big problem in certain places.
2: Can I just make an observation about that particular of course. question? Because there are at least one and a half farmers in the meeting tonight. Half? No, there is, there is never in the world more than about three months' supply of world food requirements in store. Strange as it may seem. But if the farmers stopped, well, they're the people who do a lot of manual work, there'd be nothing to eat. So we, we ought not ever to think that those who work with their hands are in any way substandard I can remember as a child of six listening to my father pray before he went to work in the morning he asked the Lord bless the work of our hands and mother was there with him and he knew perfectly well that if she didn't work with her hands there would be <laughs> nothing with <really> him <need> either <laughs> you see
0: I, I can only endorse that entirely uh, the, I did mention farmers when I was speaking, and it was—it was, it was meant—it was not meant to be derogatory. It was really meant to acknowledge that some of them have got terrible problems to face at the present moment, especially if you're in beef. <coughs> Elizabeth, I was actually just going to say that I think there is another part of the population which are um, perhaps thought of in a very similar way, and they,
2: they are the housewives and the mothers. Um, I mean, you've heard of the
0: expression, um, I don't work, I'm just a housewife. I I had that point of view in mind, because that is one of the emphases that work is much more than paid employment. Mm -hmm. And it is part of the social malaise of Britain today that the family... And especially the role of the mother in the family is derided, diminished, disparaged because it doesn't attract paid employment. It doesn't attract uh, an income. Uh, But in terms of both the strength of the church and the passing on of Christian uh, nurture and admonition to the next generation, it's one of the most significant roles in the church entirely as well as whatever larger social consequences you want.
1: I think uh, I I want to draw this uh, part of the evening to a close. It's uh, getting towards uh, our closing time of 9.15, and uh, I want to thank Professor Mackay once again. Uh, It's very obvious the immense amount of preparation he gives to what he has to say to us, to express our appreciation to you for all of that, and for also the way you're prepared to respond to a wide range of questions, uh, some of them of the immense significance. And uh, I say thank you very much indeed, once again, for coming. Thank you also for helping us collectively to craft our next series of autumn lectures. Uh, and maybe you want to stake a claim for...
0: no. no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Whether you want to do... All of them were just some of them, I was going to say. <laughs> and all sorts of um, perhaps wrong thoughts have been spilling through my mind as well. Is is sport a legitimate, a recreational leisure activity? And is watching sport? And beyond that is watching Scotland play, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm
0: glad you weren't in the audience.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much indeed for coming, and... Uh, We are immensely grateful to you.